great singing of Psalm 14, which I bet most of us have never sung before. If you would please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm chapter 14. Psalm chapter 14. Make a few words of introduction uh, before we get into Psalm 14. Again, the Psalms are 150 chapters, songs um, that have been gathered together over a period of 1,200 years from the 15th century to the 3rd century B.C. They're organized in five books that uh, many believe uh, kind of is an imitation of the five books of Moses, uh, the first five books of the Bible. We've been saying uh, last week that they are at once familiar. Think Psalm 23, think Psalm 100, but also foreign just because they were written in another time or place. These are songs and prayers offered to God by Israel. Indeed, it has been and continues to be a hymn and prayer book for the church. Because there's 150 of them, they're diverse. And yet they are unified as they are centered on the one true and living God and as they express and explore the divine human encounter. Kids, as I mentioned last week, if you look at the Psalms, uh, they look different than, say, the Gospel of Mark or the letter to the Galatians because they are poetry. And as poetry, as readers, we are forced to slow down and think and reflect. And, and in doing so, the Psalms work to inform our intellect, to arouse our emotions, to direct our wills, and to stimulate our imaginations. And when we read the Psalms with faith, we come away transformed and not just informed. Last week I mentioned that John Calvin, one of the great reformers, spoke of the Psalms as being an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And a few minutes ago I mentioned how Martin Luther, another of the great reformers, saw in the Psalms, in these 150 chapters, kind of a miniature Bible, a, 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 a little Bible, he says, in the introduction to his commentary on the song and translation on the Psalms. We've already sung two Psalms in our service, Psalm 51 and now Psalm 14. And, and, and the church, I don't believe scripture provides the warrant to just sing only Psalms, but to sing hymns and spiritual songs. We don't need exclusive psalmody, but most certainly we need inclusive psalmody. They need to be part and parcel of our worship as a church because true worship is biblically grounded and guided. It is God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-enabled. You see that even in how, we, how, how the call to worship begins. God the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, calls us to worship and informs all of the elements of worship. The Psalms promote not just corporate worship here on the Lord's Day, but also the all-of-life worship. Here we are on the first day of the week, and let me ask yourself, let me ask you this, is your tank on empty today? Well, the Psalms are going to be what God helps to refuel us. Are you lost today? The Psalms will help us to return, to find our way are you scattered? Are your thoughts all over the map? Well, the Psalms will help us refocus on the living and true God. 
Because corporate worship on the Lord's day reorients us and realigns us. And what do I mean? Again, worship as realign, as reorientation in the case of false gods. It's the move from unbeliever to believer. It's a reorientation. And you may think, oh yeah, that's for those people. No, it's for all of us because the prayer of the man we saw in Mark was, I believe, help my unbelief. And there's a little bit of unbeliever in all of us. And the Psalms help to reorient us when we are tempted to chase after false gods. But the, the Psalms as helping us in our worship help us to realign ourselves with true worship, not false worship of the true God. And here we see how the Psalms help the growing and maturing believer continue to, to align themselves with the truth of God's word. Some of you, most of you know that our family now has a dog. And you know, when I'm out walking the dog in the neighborhood, I get generally asked two questions. The first question is this, what's his name? That's easy, it's Duncan. What kind of dog is he? That's the next question. And that's a little bit tougher to answer because what do I say? Well, I think we know a little bit about his mom. We have no idea about his dad. Duncan is a canine Mutt, And I'm sure many of you do have now or have had or will have kind of those kind of dogs, not purebreds, but a combination of many breeds. Well, that's, I believe, what we have here in Psalm 14, because first of all, Psalm 14 is an unusual psalm. Uh, what is it? Is it a psalm of lament? At first, I thought so. Well, is it a psalm of praise? There's an aspect of praise. It almost seems to be, at least from the first six verses, from the book of Proverbs. So is it a wisdom psalm? But it's not there to lift up our affections, nor is it there, I believe, to analyze our inner experience. But rather, it's written to help us with spiritual discernment. And there's an aspect of it that has a prophetic exhortation. So Psalm 14 is an unusual psalm, but it's also... Nonetheless, an important and instructive psalm. Did you know that Psalm 14 is repeated three times in the Bible, at least most of it? Psalm 14 is almost exactly identical to Psalm 53. Go ahead and take a look sometime. Psalm 53 in book two is almost word for word Psalm 14. And then as we will see in Romans 3, the first three verses of Psalm 14 are repeated. Paul includes that to talking about man's condition. But later in the letter, in chapter 15 of Romans, Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So let's take a look now at Psalm 14, and as we go to God's word, let's ask for his help in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is before us, and we do thank you, Father, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Father, would you be pleased to instruct your people? Would you be pleased to encourage your people that we could run the race that is marked out 
for us. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word and we ask your blessing of it to your people now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 14, to the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Well, whereas Psalm 13 is a three stanza movement of faith from complaint to cry to confidence, um, Psalm 14 will show us a different aspect of faith. It will show us two major effects of what a fool believes and then will show us the one all-sufficient hope of what someone who is not a fool believes. So the outline didn't make it into your uh, uh, bulletin order of worship, but the first three verses are hostility toward God. Hostility toward God. Let's unpack the first words of verse number one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool. Growing up, I have distinct memories of my parents' instruction. I have a distinct memory one day of saying a word that I learned at school. I was probably in sixth grade. It was summertime. The windows were open. I said that word pretty loud in conversation with my dog. And the next thing I know, my father comes marching out of the house and told me in no uncertain terms that I was to never use that word again. And I haven't. And I remember one time telling someone that they were a fool. It was probably my sister. And my mother said in no uncertain terms that I was to not call anyone a fool. And I think she probably had some good reason to say that because in um, uh, Matthew we read, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now that was in the context of this judgment and self-righteousness, but... But you know what God does? Jesus does use the word fool in Luke 12, 20. Um, we, we see, uh, you know, you fool who are trying to, you're a man who's accumulating worldly things. You're a fool. And if you open up the book of Proverbs, that, 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 um, that, that book of wisdom versus folly, the wise versus the fool, it's everywhere. In Isaiah chapter 32 We read this, for the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord. So scripture uses the word fool. There are three words that scripture uses for fool. 
And they all have to do with a moral orientation, not an intellectual ability. And interestingly, the Hebrew word that we see translated fool here is Nabal. And believe it or not, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 25, when, when David's men go to Nabal and ask him for something, and Nabal refuses, and then David mounts up to do battle with them, but Abigail, Nabal, Nabal's wife, intercedes and provides gifts, and David's men don't destroy uh, Nabal's men. He's the fool. He's the fool. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says, where? On the, in the public platform from his lips? Where does the fool say this? In his heart. Notice it's not with his lips. It's in his heart, that center where the mind and the will and the emotions come together. The GPS, the, the, um, uh, the positioning system of life, the guidance system for life is the heart. And that's where he is speaking. It's not an intellectual or academic atheism, but it's a practical or functional atheism. Because in David's day, in the time that he is writing this, there was no such thing as an atheist. David's mainly thinking about God's people here. Those who are named Israel. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now yesterday morning, I got up early. Usually on Saturday mornings, I'm up pretty early. And some of you may have noticed there was a, a royal wedding that was taking place across the Atlantic Ocean. And I listened in and watched a little bit of that service, and boy, did it line up with so much of the traditional Protestant wedding. I mean, the vows, the scriptures read, people were singing hymns, there were scriptures read, lips were moving. There were really no atheists, it seemed, gathered there at St. George's Chapel, maybe. No atheist. Lips were moving. People were acknowledging God. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus speaks of Isaiah prophesying about the hypocrites who, who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. How does it go exactly? And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. This is the kind of atheism going on. It's not an academic, well, philosophical God doesn't exist. No, they would say that he exists with their lips. But as we will see, what they are saying is there is no God there is no God who's ruling me. There is no God who's telling me how to live, what to do. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's his creed. It's what he believes. One commentator says this, the assertion there is no God is in fact treated in Scripture not as a sincere if misguided conviction, 
but an irresponsible gesture of defiance. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, is rebellion, is wickedness, is man attempting to shake off his creator, which we see beginning in Genesis 3 and we see in Romans 1. Paul's description of it. There is no God over me. Yes, my lips may confess that there is a God, but, but the way I'm going to live, there's no God over me. I remember in seminary one day, it was a Monday evening class, one of my best friends and I were walking out with the professor and were I to mention his name, many of you have probably read his books, um, but he, if anything, was always known for his humility, his openness, his sharing of his own struggles. And he said to us, right after delivering a three-hour scripture-filled lecture, he told myself and my friend that there were days sometimes that God did not enter into his thinking. He said, I am sometimes a functional atheist. Of course, I would never say that publicly, I believe, but what I'm thinking and how I'm living betrays that. I think everybody that's participating here today in this worship service Hey, you've participated, right? You've acknowledged God with your lips. My question to you, my question to me is this. Where's our heart? Are our lips reflecting our heart or our lips disconnected from our heart? Here is this academic atheism versus a functional atheism. The uh, quote, the something to think about quote is really long. It took me about five minutes to type it. It took me about 20 minutes to read it for the first time. It's written by Stephen Charnock, an English Puritan minister who lived in the 1600s. And it, it comes from his discourses upon the existence and attributes of God, a magnificent work. And the first two chapters of this work, the first chapter is entitled The Existence of God, and it's 57 pages long in the edition I was using. 57 pages on the existence of God. But you know what? Chapter 2 was entitled Practical Atheism, and guess what? It was 75 pages long here in 1670, 1680. He's recognizing this. That there is a profession from the lips, but not a possession of the heart. That kind of practical atheism is not very practical. It's deadly. Pastoral ministry, for the most part, is a great joy. But sometimes it's, it's really quite sad. When I'm with people who... As I'm interacting with them, it's clear that they have no desire for God. They have no longing to know and enjoy Him. Now, I'm not speaking of the members and the friends here of Grace and Peace. I'm, I'm mainly speaking of others who I interact with and who come for, as it were, pastoral counseling. But it's so sad because there's no desire for God. There's no longing 
to know Him, to enjoy Him. Look at how this continues. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. This psalm is written by David. David, of course, is looking at the fool, but then he realizes that it's everyone. It's everyone. And we saw that in Psalm 51 that we sang as well. Surely I was sinful at birth from the day I was conceived. Paul in Romans chapter 3. And if you want to turn there to chapter 3. Verses... 10 through 12. He's trying to assess the the universal condition of sinful mankind. And he says this, as it is written, and Paul is thinking as it's written in Psalm 14, no, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. David is indicting himself here as well. These first three verses of Psalm 14 describe the fool, the functional atheist, as well as what he does. However, in the psalm, there is another person described as well. And so the hostility of the fool is not just directed toward God, not just I hate God, but also a hostility directed toward God's people as well. And so that's our second division, hostility toward God's people, verses 3 through 6. Let me read 3 through 6 again. They have all, excuse me, um, uh, 4 through 6. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Here is what the fool does. Who is he? He's sinful. And every sin implies that he knows better than God. This sinful condition is universal. Because anytime you or I sin, We are saying we know better than God. We are, as it were, a functional atheist at that time. And look what this fool, this enemy of God, and now an enemy of God's people, look what he does. He he eats up my people as they eat bread. Some translations, who devour my people as they eat bread. In other words, it's just part of their life. They don't even think about it. They exploit people without thinking. I'll never forget my first week in seminary when I was in a class with several students from Nigeria and they were having some trouble studying because they couldn't get, they couldn't reach their families back home in Nigeria because militant Islamic 
militant Islamists had overrun their village and killed Christians, and they didn't know if their families were alive. Several days later, some of the men got word that yes, their families had been spared, but they knew of others who had been killed. The enemies of God's people eats up my people, devours my people. We see it there. And notice also what the enemy does. The fool. Do not call upon the Lord. The fool does not call upon the Lord at the end of verse 4. And verses, and the third thing is they shame the plans of the poor. They frustrate the plans of the poor. The fool, who he is and what he does, and yet there is another person. Did you hear that other person described in verses 4 through 6? My people, the righteous the poor, my people, God's covenant. Remember, I will be your God and you will be my people. God has a people. God is concerned and cares for his people and he's described his people as the righteous, those who are trusting in God. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was not a righteousness inherent to himself, but it was a righteousness that was given. And the poor. Here it's not so much the economically poor, although of course that would be an aspect, but the poor in spirit. Those people who acknowledge their weakness. Who acknowledge their helplessness. And these people then. My people, the righteous, the poor. If the... the um, Fool is described as not calling on the Lord. The righteous person, God's person, is the one who has called upon the Lord. And notice here before we move on that the fool, for all his wisdom, he lives in great terror. Verse 5, there they are in great terror for God is with the generation of the righteous. He knows there is a God and he knows that there's a coming judgment and Romans 1 made that clear. You can suppress the truth for so long. You can exchange the truth only for so long before the truth will make itself known. And you and I have friends like that, don't we? Worldly successful, everything is at ease. Oh, maybe they are church attenders. Maybe their lips confess the Lord, but you can tell by the way they live, how they treat people, that their heart is far away from the Lord. And they may seem to be at rest, but you can press them. They're afraid. They're scared. They are in great terror. They know that the Lord is on the side of the righteous. Well, after spending the first six verses dealing with the hostility of the fool toward God and toward his people, the psalmist ends the psalm by turning our attention to the hope that God's people have. That is, those people who call upon the Lord and find their refuge in him. And so, verse seven hope for God's people. I appreciate so much the subject of this month's Table Talk magazine, Hope Amid Disappointment. In the opening article are these words. The hope that God gives is not wishful thinking. 
It's not merely a feeling that we have when everything is going well in life. It's not a personality temperament, nor is simply a self-help strategy. Hope is a steadfast, unwavering conviction rooted in our faith and overflowing into our hearts and minds and all of life. Hope is not the absence of disappointment. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 is hope for God's people. Hear it again. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Here is an aspect of looking ahead. Salvation coming from Zion, from Jerusalem, from where heaven and earth met. And it's the salvation that comes and that restores God's people. It's what God's people were were looking forward to. And this confidence and assurance is because it's not if, but when. Notice, when the Lord restores the fortunes of His people. It's only a matter of time. And that's why it can tie back into how long, O Lord, How long are we going to have to wait for this? And look at the end. A call to rejoice and to be glad. In the midst of living among people who are fools. Because these fools say in their heart, there is no God. And they live like it. When I came up with the title for this sermon, a particular song from 1979 kept going through my head, What a Fool Believes. But another song came up from 1972 called Everybody Plays the Fool. There's no exception to the rule. Everybody plays the fool. I want you to turn with me to Titus chapter 3. We're about ready to end. As I mentioned earlier, David counted himself among the fools at times. Because whenever David sinned, and did he sin? Oh yes, he did. He thought he knew better than God. He was honoring God with his lips, but his heart and his life was far from God. In Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3 through verse 7. This is what Paul says. Remember, Paul, the academic, the one who could have proved God existed. Here's what Paul says. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the, fav- the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, because, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
Indeed, the Scriptures make it clear, everybody plays the fool. But some people are favored. Remember in Genesis, what we read earlier, but Noah, we actually skipped that, but Noah found favor. In the midst of the fool who says in his heart there is no God, some people find favor. There has been and there will be deliverance. Because you see, in chapter 14, you see depravity and you see deliverance. You see the foolishness, the fool, and you see the favored one. My friends, do you recognize, do you acknowledge your depravity? Do you also recognize and acknowledge your deliverance? You see, because God didn't just look down, did he? And he didn't come down in wrath. He came down in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because in a few moments, we are going to confess together this great creed which says about Jesus, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. My friends, that is good news. Indeed, when Jesus came down from heaven for our salvation, God also came down in wrath as he exhausted, Jesus exhausted the wrath of God in our place and on our behalf. So let's end by asking two questions that this text, I think, causes us to ask. And that is this, what do you believe? What do you believe? If you believe there is no God who reigns and rules for His glory and the, and, and, and the good of His people, if that's what you believe, the story of your life is going to end very badly. But, but for those who do believe, those who confess with their lips but also possess with their hearts that there is a God. He has made Himself known. He has sought me and found me. He has died in my place, been raised on my behalf. If that's what you believe, then the story of your life will never end. It will go on and on in glory and goodness. Right in the middle of this psalm is a description of people who do not call upon the Lord. And so this last question is this. Have you called upon the Lord? Will you call upon the Lord? The Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord listens to and responds to those who cry out to him who call upon him for salvation and rescue. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, what could be seen as an unusual psalm, but nonetheless an absolutely important and instructive psalm. And we thank you, Father, that your word is indeed breathed out by you and it's profitable for us. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to use this particular portion 
in, from your word to show us indeed that we do play the fool at times, but enable us more and more to run to Christ, who indeed is the wisdom and power of God. For we pray in his name. Amen.